Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. They have given us permission to broadcast his recordings, and we hear one of them now. Giving and Getting As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This story used to really annoy me. Why did Jesus let the poor chap walk away sorrowing when a slight curving of the rules would have had him dancing with delight? That's definitely what I would have done, wouldn't you? As the years pass, I am forced to the conclusion that I may have been a mite hasty in reacting so negatively. I know now that a, a deep and doom-laden fear was the underlying reason for my cross-response to Jesus' handling of that particular situation. I was afraid, and the same fear is by no means foreign to me now, that Jesus would ask me to sell all that I had and give it to the poor. Our riches come in many wild and wonderful forms, and they are always in the same place as our hearts. My fear was and is that God constantly asks me to give away or, at the very least, to loosen my grip on the thing that I value most, the thing that makes me feel safe and OK. I heard a story in Australia that helped me. A young mentally handicapped girl called Minnie was sitting in church with her carer, Today, Minnie had a new purse with her own money in it, but she wasn't sure how much she should put in the collection plate. How much do you think I ought to put in? she whispered. Well, that's between you and God, Minnie, replied the lady. Minnie opened her purse. She had two coins, a fifty-cent piece, a large coin, worth about twenty-two pence in English money, and a two-dollar piece, tiny in comparison, but worth four times as much. Minnie took out this smaller coin, held it in her fist, and she prayed with her eyes screwed tight shut. Her prayer answered, she opened her eyes, plunged the two-dollar piece back into her purse, and held up the fifty-cent coin. No, she said, her eyes shining, the big one for Jesus. If we give away the thing that seems most valuable to us, we may, by God's grace, be left with something that always was immeasurably more valuable than we could have realised or imagined. Pray with me. Lord, I need some help here. First of all, I'm not at all confident about being able to identify the thing that I value most. Here's a list of front-running candidates. The love and companionship of my wife and family and friends the pursuit of top-level priorities involving security and love in my immediate family, the choice of where I shall live and the kind of work I shall do. I want to go on being a writer. 
Opportunities to have large, expansive meals accompanied by good wine with people who make me relax. Enough money to prevent the dreadful, desolate feeling that comes when we haven't any at all. The right to be offended and to demonstrate my upsetness by sulking or using some other negative ploy. That's my list, Lord. Other people's will be different, I know. I also know there's nothing really wrong with any of the things on my list. Well, I suppose number six is not too wonderful, but I don't want any of them to be at the top. I want you to be there. I want to be as wise and as generous as Minnie. Help me, Father. Amen.
Wahid Aryan grew up in Afghanistan when it was occupied by Soviet Russia. His family escaped to a refugee camp in Pakistan where Wahid caught malaria and tuberculosis. Wahid was so impressed by the care given to him by the doctors that he vowed to become a doctor himself. At the age of 15 he managed to reach England as a refugee Wahid explains to Michael Barclay how he managed to achieve his dream. Watching the terrible war in Ukraine unfold, it's been deeply moving to see the huge crowds of people queuing at the border, dragging small suitcases, carrying babies and children, leaving their homeland behind. Well, my guest today, Dr. Wahid Aryan, knows what it's like to be forced to leave your home suddenly and under fire. He's a refugee from an earlier war, the Soviet-Afghan War, which lasted for almost 10 years and claimed the lives of as many as 2 million Afghan civilians. 5 million people are estimated to have left the country as refugees, and Wahid Aryan was one of them. In 1988, at the age of five, he escaped on horseback from Afghanistan to Pakistan, arriving at a refugee camp on the northwest frontier. In the camp, he almost died from malnutrition, malaria and TB. But, just in time, he managed to get medical treatment and the doctor who treated him inspired an ambition to be a doctor himself and to help others like him. Dr. Wahid Aryan is now an A&E doctor in the NHS and he's founded a pioneering medical charity, Aryan Teleheal. He's received many awards for his work and has written about his life in a vivid memoir, In the Wars. It's such a moving journey, Wahid, and horribly topical at the moment. Well, thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's really triggering for me personally to be watching this devastating scene. So many of them coming from Ukraine. My heart goes out to all the people who are suffering on the ground and for the families who are away, and they're watching the loved ones suffer. And the jets screaming above, the tanks rolling in, the bullets flying, they all just remind me personally of the Soviet uh, and Afghan conflict in the 80s and the subsequent civil war in the 90s. So you know that the mental damage that that's doing to uh, young people, not to mention the physical. Almost all of us uh, have elements of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it was not diagnosed when I came to the UK, and I'll touch upon later on du during the story. But then later on, when we see any of these scenes of conflict, even if it's decades later, they will be triggering for us. They can come in form of nightmares, flashbacks. For me, as a physician, I'm, I'm aware when they come in, so I know how to cope with them. And they're not at the level that disrupt my day-to-day -day life. When they start disrupting day-to-day -day life, that's when it becomes problematic medical school imperial college in london and i asked the admissions officer i turned up and i said i want to become a doctor and this lady very nicely asked me excuse me and i said <laughs> i want to become a doctor how do i do this and it's like well which school do you go to i said well i'm not going to school and i started um first learning english on my own uh, i went to Maidaville college I sat for the pre-A-level test and I thought if I fail this, I will do GCSE. If I pass that, then I will go straight for the AS. I borderline passed that exam. 
and they allowed me to do the AS. And that was the beginning of my journey of doing AS. And I soon realized that actually, from the mock exams, when I got a, a D, that I actually I needed an A. So I had to work extremely hard. And that meant for me that I used every single waking hour working. Even when there were no customers, I had my book there. And at night time, I was reading past papers. And I completely focused on it in, in a, such a tunnel vision that I, apart from supporting family members, supporting my brother, I was working on A-levels. I think there'll be some parents listening to this program who are saying, I wish young so-and-so would listen to some of this and take a bit of advice. But I think everybody has in them the potential to do something. As long as they want it, as long as it sits with their dream, they should pursue it. Piano music now. And I think this is thanks to an older lady who you visited in Cambridge as a student. And uh, actually, she ended up playing the piano for you. So at Cambridge University, I became increasingly isolated. Uh, so there was a charity for the elderly where students can go and speak and spend some time with them. And I realized that that could be something that I could help with. And when I signed up for that, I was assigned to this uh, lovely lady uh, near our college. And I visited her in a flat. And as soon as I would enter and I would see this big smile, she would welcome me home. And for me, it was somewhere that I could call home, which didn't exist for me. For me, it was a college room. I would go out. I would be somebody extremely isolated, living in my own world, locking away my traumas. But in that house, in that flat... I could relax. Instead of me doing things for her, she would make me a cup of tea. And then she one day proposed that, oh, do you like listening to music? I said, I'd love to. And there was a, a piano. She sat on the piano. Although she said, oh, I've got arthritis, and I knew she was suffering. And as soon as she started playing the piano, it was magical. I was thinking as we were listening to that wonderful Schubert impromptu in A-flat major, Deutsch 899, played by Imogen Gooper and very beautifully, I was thinking that music actually has, doesn't it, within it, a kind of joyous celebration of life and a nostalgia and sort of the, uh, you know, it's the bittersweet quality of life. Well, that, that's uh, an extremely good summary of it, bittersweet. How did you feel with the other Cambridge students, Wahid? I mean, I think you felt that you were sort of wearing a mask a lot of the time. Yes, wearing a mask was in a way that for me to protect my emotions, to protect all 
the memories that were there and, and subconsciously knowing that they would make me uncomfortable. So I couldn't find that deeper connection. And the only person I found some sort of deeper connection with was this kitchen porter, actually, uh, who was at Trinity Hall College. And I would talk about family with him because we had a connection. He was helping his family and I was helping my family. But having said that, the college was extremely kind to me. And on the paper, I would articulate what my problems were. Uh, the tutors knew that I was also struggling academically as a result of that to start with. They supported me enormously and they gave me money as well. And they said that, Wahid, if you're working for, to support your brother and yourself, you don't have to. We'll give you some money. And I still have got a very close relationship with my tutors. It sounds very difficult, even though you'd fulfilled your childhood ambition of becoming a doctor, and then you decided that you needed to find some way of helping other doctors in places like Afghanistan, and you founded a telemedicine charity. Tell me how that works. So 2010, when I became a doctor, that was realisation of one of my primary dreams. And to be able to serve in the NHS was also for me to give back to the country that gave me so much to the people who kindly embraced me as, as their own. But then I also turned my attention to Afghanistan because I knew there was so much trauma, so much suffering in Afghanistan. And despite uh, being there, a new government supported by the West, so I kept going back and forth to Afghanistan to see my family members. But after staying a couple of nights with my mum and dad, I would immediately go to a local hospital, introduce myself. And I soon realised that they needed a lot of medical expertise. They didn't have the chance to go abroad to attend conferences to update their knowledge. And that was the gap that later on I wanted to fill in by connecting specialists from the NHS to start with initially. And then later on, we've got volunteers from across the world, like from America, from Canada and Australia, that they give advice to medics in Afghanistan on smartphones. It could be a bomb blast. It could be a chronic illness. It could be a child falling into the well, which happens into the villages. And, and they sustain so many various injuries from head injury to broken bones to punctured lungs. So these are complex traumas and they doctor would video call with another doctor over here in real time, not with a delay.
Ian Myerscoff has produced a series of talks for us based on John's Gospel. Today, he examines the importance of having firm foundations. I've been thinking about foundations this week. I used to be a new house builder. Everyone knows foundations are everything in that trade. I'd like to say we always got it right, but that wouldn't be the whole truth. The floor shows up sooner or later, and then everyone can see you got it wrong. The only fix is to go back to foundations and build a new one underneath. In life, we all want to say we got the basic things right, but that perception can be clouded by many factors, so when an inconvenient truth presents itself, we can resort to denial. It may seem to work in the short term, but it's scary to think of the consequences if indeed we live in a moral world. When I was a volunteer builder in a drug rehab, every day I saw the notice in the coffee lounge which read, Denial is not a river in Egypt. When John wrote his Gospel, which is my favourite Bible book, he didn't flinch from laying a foundation in the first couple of verses. These days, it's an inconvenient truth, which Western thought has discarded. But without it, I suggest that the rest of human life is shaky at best. Let me read them. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. For twenty years we had an eminent close neighbour in our university street, who was the professor of philosophy and the foremost exponent of atheism in the UK. His demolition of religious faith was legendary. Though the son of a vicar, he abandoned the faith of his parents. In his closing years, he professed to a change of heart, which was greeted scornfully by fellow atheists as a sign of dementia. He protested that he's only come to that conclusion position through modern scientific discoveries which for him made Darwin's theories impossible to support. Rather than professing Christianity, he said he now believed in an intelligent designer. He was addressing his own foundations very bravely in public. He apologised for, in his own words, misleading people throughout his long academic life. He would have sympathised with the Hellenistic Greek worldview which prevailed in the Roman world in which the Apostle John lived. Their more famous philosopher than him, Aristotle, from Plato's school, had said, There must be a prime mover, a being from which all creation came. John says, Everything was made by him, 
and without him nothing was made that was made. Then John goes further by putting a name on this one. He is the Word. Reading on, we realise the Word is Jesus, who John had first followed as a young man, after walking away from his fishing livelihood, to find light and true life itself. And now, after a long life, and now in prison, he writes for us about this one he'd come to follow and trust. Three years of daily walking with him. And then Jesus' shocking death and life-changing resurrection meant nothing else mattered for John. We need to examine this foundation for ourselves, especially if we're to read on in his gospel. I recommend it to you. We'll look at how Jesus impacts John and us in the next few weeks. God bless.